I hear those kids. Let me hear those tambourines. All right. That's one way to celebrate and worship. And now you get to put them down. (laughs) And you get to pick them up again when we do the baptism. That is wonderful. Great way to celebrate. We continue our series called Alternative Reality. And whether we realize it or not, there is another reality around us. And it's the kingdom of God. And for those of us who believe and who are followers of Christ, our eyes get open to a new reality all around us. And for these last several weeks, Dr. Larry Shenard, who's a part of our church here and a professor of ethics in New Testament, has really been helping us dig deep and giving us some good, meaty things to think about as we work through Matthew. And today will be the same. He's going to teach us about living in this new kingdom reality called the community of the church. And uh, so we look forward to that. Now, now, last week, Larry, you gave us an assignment. You guys remember what the assignment was? Write a parable. Now, how many of you did your homework? Let's be honest. We're honest in church today, so you can't lie. I mean, even if I'm going to maybe be a little disappointed, let me see. How many of you have thought of a parable? Let me see. <laughs> and she wasn't even here last Sunday. <laughs> it's hard. If you, how many of you at least tried or gave it a thought? It crossed your mind once. Now, how many of you just went like, forgot? How many of you? All right. How many of you just go, that's just too hard. I'm going to let the pastor do that stuff. All right. Anyway, I was struggling all week to come up with a parable. But last night, my, my daughter provided me with a wonderful parable. Miana provided me with a parable, and, and it was this. And the parable goes something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like, because that's how we were supposed to start them, okay? The kingdom of heaven is like a small child with a very loose tooth who is so afraid to lose that tooth and pull it out. But when she does, there is great rejoicing and great reward the tooth fairy. All right? All right. Now, if Jesus was teaching, that's all he'd say, and he'd walk away, and you now have to figure out how that is like the kingdom of heaven. And maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but Larry, that was my best shot. Larry, come on up and, uh, and teach us this morning. Give Larry a big hand. Welcome. Thanks. Larry. Thanks, Mark. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed that uh, some people gave some emphasis in this area of writing a parable. The, the, the reason that's important is because it helps you to kind of focus on how our natural world might kind of lend a vision to the transcendent world we're talking about called the kingdom of the heavens. So if you can do that, if you can look at our natural world, just think of things that happen to you during the week and ask yourself, how could this be phrased or storied out, you might say, by the leading line being the kingdom of heaven is like. And so those kind of things help us to kind of get a better grasp because this idea of kingdom is not easy sometimes to get a handle on. Um, It's one of those theological themes that there's been a lot of writing on. And I'm trying to just give you a a glimpse of vision by allowing Matthew to kind of lead us to the feet of Jesus. And five times in Matthew's gospel, the, the narrative flow of the story kind of stops and Jesus begins to teach his disciples helping them to get it. They don't always get it, but helps them to understand what it is that he's trying to get across to them. And every one of those times is a discussion about kingdom. That's how important it is. And so today, you know, as we've worked our way through uh, Matthew's gospel, today we're going to be focused on Matthew 18. I happen to look in your Bibles here. It's actually on page 746 in your Bibles. So if you want to pick up a Bible from a chair standing next to you or there on the floor, grab one because Matthew 18 is what we'll be working through. Keep in mind that in, in the first discourse, there's this 
wonderful, insightful vision about what character looks like in the kingdom. What are the values that we embrace now that we follow Jesus? What are the priorities that now grip our lives now that we follow Jesus? That's chapters 5 through 6 and 7. Then when we came to chapter 10, we dealt with the issue of mission. What does Jesus want his people to do? What is the mission that he has called them to embark upon? Chapter 10 discusses that. Chapter 13, which we talked about last week, are the parables. But every one of those parables begins, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so Jesus tells short stories to give a a glimpse, an insight, in what it means to embrace that new, profound kingdom reality. Today, which I think fits very well with our with our baptisms today, we're going to be talking in chapter 18 about what is Jesus' vision of church and and how does it relate to the kingdom of the heavens, to God reigning in our world. As those of you this morning give that kind of confession of your faith in Jesus in baptism, Paul describes it as walking in the newness of life, Romans 6. That's Paul's way of saying walking now in kingdom reality. And that helps us to kind of get a feel for why this step kind of captures again that singular event of of the burial and, and being raised from the dead and now walking in that newness of life. So let's turn our Bibles to chapter 18. And we're going to focus again on, as I mentioned, on the relationship of the church. And let me just get a slide up there that will help you to see this. Well, it's already up there. Thank you. I want you to look at this for a moment and think about what the function of the church is. Essentially, what's going on in church is that kingdom realities, kingdom values, the kingdom way of life is mediated through the body of Christ, the church, before a world that watches this alternative reality begin to be lived out in life. That's our primary witness, to embody, to live out, to embrace a radically different worldview that challenges the status quo, that challenges our culture, and begins to now give us a glimpse of an alternative way of life. That's how the church and the kingdom relate to one another. So the church... And listen carefully to this now. The church is a means to an end. Some people think, come to church, that's it. Assemble on Sunday, that's what it's all about. No, it it involves a, a purpose. There is a means to an end and why you come together, why you gather, why you fellowship in community and solidarity one with another, and why you do life together. It's really basically fundamental to train one another in a new uh, sense of values and way of life and worldview. And so we we need to be about this. This The church becomes a learning environment. I was just reading an article this past week in which an individual was writing the article on on how Christian colleges and seminaries, seminaries need to cultivate within their students a sense of character and values. And I wrote a response, and I asked this question. Why did the church outsource that kind of learning effort to higher institutions of learning? Why can't the church do a lot of that? 
Why don't we train people not only in how to think differently, but even how to read your Bibles to get the most out of it? The church is that place where that can happen, and, and I, therefore I think it's vital to begin to think about then the relationship of the church uh, and the kingdom of God. I want to suggest then that if, if you announce to someone, if you say to someone, and we've oftentimes heard this line, that something like, I got saved the other day. Let me suggest the question you ask then, for what reason? Usually the response is, so I can go to heaven. But I want to suggest to you that God calls his people and God rescues his people in order to, to cultivate a people who will be then a blessing to the world, who are called to bless the world. Abraham called to bless the world. Israel, a called people, called to be a light and a blessing to the world. In the same way, church is to be a blessing to the world. Not a hideout. Not a kind of, you know, withdrawal into, you know, behind uh, high walls from the world. But to move out into the world and bless the world. So when you understand church like that, then you start thinking, well, then how do we do that? What does it look like? I want to just notice here then from chapter 18, which I've entitled Mediating Kingdom Priorities or Realities. And I want to, if you have your Bibles, and we'll work through chapter 18, not in any great detail. They put a leash on me, so I only have a certain amount of time today. (laughs) You know, I teach. I teach like this stuff. When I go and teach, it's usually five days, and I do eight to ten hours a day. So, you know, you're getting by easy here. Um, So as you look at chapter 18, look at the context which stimulates Jesus' discourse in chapter 18. Look what happens. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you may wonder, what a question. I mean, we would not... We would not raise that kind of question to Jesus. It's like we're competing with one another. Tell us of of your disciples, which one stands out in your eyes? But that is a society and a culture that gave themselves a lot to self-promotion, to boasting. And so the only way they could see the world is in some way finding my identity, finding who I am in contrast to someone else. So am I better than him or her? Who's the greatest among you? What Jesus does, and and, and I might point out that later on, the same issue comes up. Right after Jesus announces in chapter 20, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be executed. How do the disciples respond? Even having their mother join them in in their self-interest? The disciples respond, well, um, when you go into your kingdom and you become king, I want to sit one on your right and one on your left. Let us have places of prestige, places of honor. You see, they struggle with that. That's the way they thought of kingdom. That's what I mean when, as you follow Jesus, he begins to turn that whole concept upside down and begins to challenge the way they think about greatness. So as you look at how Jesus deals with this, he begins to talk about, later on, about servant leadership. And how that you're really devoid of your own self-interest and you are caring about others. 
You really are trying to invest your life in others. That's the foundation of good leadership. And so moving to the concept of greatness in a kingdom perspective then sees servanthood as foundational and begins to help us to understand a little bit what that means in terms of following Jesus. The second thing that Jesus does right after this, though, he, he's, he's a master at illustration. And he, he has a visual aid. I was going to ask a little child to come up, but that might be dangerous. <laughs> I can use him. Come on up. Come on up. Okay. Now, Jesus calls the little child, and he begins to talk to the disciples that unless you become like a little child, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of the heavens. Did you notice that you were that valuable? You, as a little child, mimic or model something about the kingdom of the heavens. What is it about children that we, we admire and, and they model the kingdom of the heavens? Most of the time we say things like, well, they're so teachable, they're so innocent, they're so gentle. But all of us who have had kids know that's not it. <laughs> but really, what it is in that world is that the children were on the lowest of the, of the ladder of status and clout. They had no prestige. They had nothing to bring to the table. They were utterly dependent upon others. Mom and dad, the society in which they lived, their well-being depended upon that. And so Jesus used the children to illustrate the point, you've got to learn dependency. Thank you. Good job. I'll use you next time, too. You know, when you think about it, um, we live in such an age of self-sufficiency. We, we think we can do it on our own. You know, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and we feel good about our accomplishments. We hear people boasting, for example, I worked all my life, I earned it, I did it, calling attention to themselves. Of course, people have pointed out that there are a whole lot of other people that have come to the surface that have enabled them to be able to be as successful as they are. Jesus is pointing out here to the disciples, you need to learn the sense of dependency upon God and define yourself in those terms. Because when they jockey for position, they're looking at it from the perspective of, I can earn my greatness. And therefore, my greatness will in some way demand that God respond to me in different ways than he does others. So Jesus challenges that mentality. But he also does this. He says, and I want to tell you something. This is, this is serious stuff. I remember the first time I read this. I wasn't sure what a millstone was, but I knew it was probably not good. Put, you know, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, and you treat them without a level of respect and regard, and you cause them to wander away, you might as well take one of these huge stones they, they use to crush the grain that, a, that an ox or a donkey would walk around and pull that stone around. You might as well put it on your head and jump into the sea. Because you are not valuing what I value, what God values. You are using the, Lord, the world's criteria for success and greatness. If you become the cause of finding these people pushed out because they do not measure up to your expectations, then you have really eliminated yourself from participation in this kingdom. I think one of the things we need to understand is that 
one of the things that uh, those people that are, think, uh, are going to be baptized today, one of the things you learn in Christ is that you begin to see people through a different lens. And you value people regardless of where they are on the economic strata, regardless of how prestige, the prestige they may have or how uh, a lack of prestige they may have. You begin to see people through a different lens. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples then. And the church, in the church, that's where we begin to learn those kind of things. That's where we begin to learn how to do that. Now, the problem is, oftentimes, we, we're not intentional about it. I was, I was absolutely staggered being, being teaching in a church and preaching in a church in, in Alabama and finding out that we actually had numerous clan members who were part of that church. And I'm thinking, how did this happen? Where has not the vision of kingdom and what Jesus calls his people to be, how would it ever tolerate that in its midst? So when you start looking at this discourse, then you see how he puts a great emphasis upon those who are, who are the uh, push to the margins, the nobodies. And he says, you go to extreme of avoiding that, where you cause another person to stumble. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Cast out your eye. Now, obviously, losing body parts don't make you, does not make you more spiritual. But he's using extreme language to convey to us the, the, the absolute focus you need to have on cultivating this kind of spirit towards others. And, and it comes with practice. It comes with, with the deliberateness of doing things that will cultivate a much deeper respect for other people. And so... That's what I think is, is essential in the church. You know, when, when the rich man walked by Lazarus every day and saw him lying there in his, his sores and, and all his horrid conditions, the rich man did not walk over to Lazarus and on a daily basis kick him. He did not spit on him. He did not call him a name. He just ignored him. He just kept walking. He didn't see him. And it's that very thing which Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, to open your eyes to a reality here. Yeah? That's the reality. It's kind of booming in here, you know? <laughs> Thanks. Good timing back there. Boy. <laughs> so when that reality begins to boom and it begins to click, you begin to see lives in a different way. And, and let me suggest you do this. Here's the, here's the thing you need to practice. You need to say this line, because I am not God, now fill in the blank, I cannot know the heart of another, I cannot know how much this individual has struggled to try to overcome their vice, I cannot know the conditions that brought them to where they are, I cannot know the background in detail. Because I am not God, I cannot stand in judgment. So I move to their space and engage them as a person of worth and value, in spite of the fact that the world pushes them aside as having no real value. 
So as we look at Jesus' discourse here, then he moves from the children and talks about the little ones and not causing them to stumble. But then look what he does down in verse um, 10. He begins to describe a situation where a shepherd has, has a great flock, 99 or 100. And what one of them goes astray and wanders away. The shepherd, notice what moves the shepherd. The shepherd is moved to the plight of the one. The shepherd is concerned about the one who wanders away and is willing to leave the 99 to go find the one. The value of the one. Sometimes we get lost in the masses. We're more concerned about numbers. You know, we've heard the line concerning banks and institutions, of uh, economic institutions, that they are too big to fail. Sometimes I want to say about churches, they're too big to care. And by that I mean individuals caring for the individual, seeing the faces of the individual, and engaging in them, engaging where they're at. So one of the things that, that Jesus does is say, recognize the fact that these people are of worth even though they've wandered away. And you seek them out. You seek their restoration. Why do you do that? Because that models what God did for us. Think where you were wandering around out here. And God brought his rescue plan, his redemptive plan that brought you into the fold. And that grace exhibited. So when you start looking at then the, 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 uh, the, the point here is we need to have a heart for the lost, the least, and the last. That's, that's what Jesus called us to do. And you have to be moved by the things that, that, that oftentimes grip people's lives and cause them to wander away and be willing to walk with them. I want to suggest to you, I think we as a church need to kind of take this vow. Those who are being baptized today, we have your back and we want you to know we will walk with you and help you and be there if you have a crisis come up. Everybody be with that? Say amen. All right. That's what we need to be as a church. They know. They know. They're not coming in a group that's just going to ignore them from then on and you're on your own. You're part of a community of faith. And we walk together on this journey. And some of us are further down the road than others. But all of us carry a burden. And sometimes you can help me with mine, and I can help you with yours. That's the nature of the community of faith then. And so that idea of, 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 of moving towards the plight of people and, and really hearing their story. And, um, and who, who would we say is dispensable here? Nobody is. We all see the value and worth of each one. And that, that's kind of, that was difficult for me when I became a Christian. I talked about my story earlier about becoming a Christian later in life and, and, and uh, not having any church background at all. So going to church and watching how it was the case that, that it seems as if Christians gravitated to certain other Christians, but those people that did not quite look like them or did not, were not in the same economic or the same uh, you know, in, in, uh, intelligence or educational level, they kind of moved back away from it. And that's what I think we need to ask ourselves some serious questions here. The natural movement of the kingdom of the heaven 
is bent to the least, is bent towards those who are the, the, the people cast out by the broader society. That's our natural tendency. Now, I'll tell you what, you've got to learn that because it's not the way of the world. If you, don't, if you don't think that's the case, just listen to conversations that people have who are indicting other people so easily as if they know their story, as if they know what they're all about. One of the things in Christ, you begin to learn about, not only about others, but about yourself and how you would want to be treated. So the issue then becomes are that willingness to go to the one that wanders astray. And then what about this? This is an interesting area. Uh, obviously, it never happens in church, but, some, but in other institutions, there is a conflict that happens. That was facetious. Uh, I, I am just amazed by this aspect of your growth in Christ and development is not being addressed oftentimes. Fundamental Ways of conflict management, you might say. How do I deal with issues when a brother has in some way sinned against me, done something to me? I think that's what the text is talking about. Some translations have it just generally that uh, if a brother or a disciple sins in general. I think it's more talking about a specific, a specific vice or something that was done to you specifically. And you felt it to be wrong. Now, ask yourself this question. How do I normally respond? Well, I may shut down towards that person. I have no other dealings with them. They're treated as, as someone that, that I have no, no relationships with again. Or I begin to badmouth them behind their back to other people. Notice in the story, as Jesus tells it in verse... Um, uh, 15 beginning, he describes the effort of one who has been offended to go to the offender to do what? To seek reconciliation. Why does he seek reconciliation? Because that's a fundamental value of the kingdom. Reconciling together. That's what God did in Christ with humanity. That's what we model. The willingness to go when a broken relationship is there and bring about healing to that relationship. And it only escalates as one continually hardens themselves and refuse to be reconciled. You know, if you've got a situation where a person just absolutely refuses to be reconciled, then you, you escalate it further. Take a few more people with you from the church who value reconciliation, who want to have a restored relationship. If they don't hear them then, take it to the whole church because that's not what we're about. We're not about that. We are people who value the idea of restored relationships. That goes to the core of who we are. But you see, that's an aspect oftentimes not taught from the get-go. So people still come into Christ, they're baptized, they begin to, to, to attend church, but they continue on with this baggage of anger and animosity towards others, easily ticked off. And, and that's something that in, the, in Christ we need to start addressing and help people to begin to overcome that and show them a path to overcome it in Christ. So the issue then has to deal with, with uh, restoring uh, a restorative mission 
to, to once again now embrace this person and um, begin to bring them back into a, a fellowship and a relationship. And Jesus says, you know, that when that goes on, I am in your midst. You know where it says that two or three are gathered? I think it's in the context here of the willingness to work out conflict and, and bring about wholeness of relation, uh, solidarity once again, a relationship once again. That, uh, to me, that needs to be high on the discipling process. You see, all of these are heart issues, aren't they? They're not just believing the right things and have a checklist. Do you believe this? Yes. Okay. Do you believe this? Yes. Yes. Okay. Good. Go. You've got all the right doctrinal things down. These are character issues. These are heart issues that are not overcome in an instant, that you work on, that you have to deal with. And yet that's what the church is designed to do. That's what it's best at doing and moving into people's lives and helping them to deal with that. So as you begin to think in terms of, of becoming a follower of Jesus, recognize that it's going to bring about some changes internally. And some of the changes will happen on a level that is totally unexpected. I remember this hardened biker that was, uh, became a Christian in the, in the uh, street ministry we had in Spokane, Washington. Became a Christian. And this guy, I mean, been in jail for a while, he'd done all this stuff, and, and a pretty hardened guy. He'd been going there for about six or seven months, and he told me one day, he says, you know, I was sitting there, we're talking about some of this stuff, and I felt something wet going down my cheek. He said, I realized I had, I had not cried since probably first grade. He said, some reason my heart is being transformed and changed here, and I don't know how it's happening, and I'm a little bit scared of it. That's what we're talking about. So it's part of the association. It's part of finding people who live like this, who you can model, because most of these virtues or values are more caught than taught. You just mentor people and help them to be able to begin to overcome some of these things that have have uh, so gripped their lives and their hearts. The final thing that he mentions in chapter 18, after, after, after Jesus talked about you know, bringing this person to forgiveness and treat, seeking restoration, Peter raises this question. Well, Lord, how many times should we forgive? Is there a limit? Where do I draw the line? How about seven times? That's more than any other rabbi said. Jesus said, why not do seven times 70? Now, he's not saying just get it to 490, then you can take his head off. He's talking about, you know, forgiveness is just the default position of Christians. It's where we live. It's who we are. Now you're saying, yeah, but, you know, that's, that's tough. That's hard to do. I want to read a couple citations. I, I want to deal with this subject. I mean, this is, like I say, this is... A, three-hour class here, but let me read a couple of quotes that I found most helpful. One from Howard Zerr, who says this, forgiveness is letting go of the power the offense and the offender have over a person. It means no longer letting the offense and the offender dominate. Without the experience of forgiveness, without this closure, the wound festers. The violation takes over our consciousness, our lives. It and the offender are in control. 
Real forgiveness, then, is an act of empowerment and healing. It allows one to move from victim to survivor. Now, you that have, have really gone through this forgiveness process, that it's an art, and understood what it's all about, you begin to see that, indeed, you move to survivor, away from victim. Another quote on this. Forgiveness is what happens when the victim of some hurtful action freely chooses to release the perpetrator of that action from the bondage of guilt, gives up his or her own feelings of ill will, and surrenders any attempt to hurt and damage the perpetrator in return, thus clearing the way for reconciliation and restoration of relationship. Now, when you read stuff like that, you begin to see, hey, this, this is a real art, and it's so countercultural. It's even countered our own instincts. We want to get even. As I mentioned the other day, you know, all of our action films are revenge-oriented. How many films do you know that really teaches a lesson of, of forgiveness? What forgiveness and the power of it looks like? It's a process that needs to be been worked out in one's life, and learning the art of it happens in the context of the church. I think we need to call attention to it. You, you talk about coming out of the closet. We need to bring some solid Christians out of the closet and say, like Paul says, model these guys. They demonstrated a kind of, of spirit and attitude that are really what we're talking about in Christ and what it means to follow Christ. And so I want to suggest to you, forgiveness is a core value of kingdom. Take Matthew's gospel, look, under the, look up the word forgiveness, and watch how many times Jesus mentions forgiveness and the not practicing forgiveness, what it will bring about. Look at the last verse of chapter 18. This is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. He just talked about being cast away. Forgiveness is not just an optional thing. It's, it's an absolute necessity. Because you've decided to follow Jesus. All right, concluding then. Who wouldn't want to belong to a community like that? That embraces everyone who are not in this competitive notion of who's greatest and who's standing on top and who's in control. Who really does embrace the nobodies and loves them and cares for them. Who seeks out those who are wandering astray and seem to be now floundering in their faith. Who really tries to work out conflict in a constructive way to restore relationships, and who does practice the art of forgiveness. Who wouldn't want to belong to a community like that? Here's the point. Here's the point. Is that how the world sees the church? What is the typical world indictment of the church? See, when we start looking at it from that perspective, we see a huge chasm begin to appear. Take Jesus' ideal vision here and ask yourself, how can we be a people who embrace the nobodies, who seek out people, who are willing to walk with people in their journey in life, who really practice the art of forgiveness? How can we be those kind of people? And so what I suggest to you then, these are radically alternative values that characterize the kingdom of the heavens. You who are being baptized today, this is the movement you're going to be participating in. Please excel in this. Show us, show, manifest the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit in ways that will catch our attention and help us to learn from you as you also learn from us. Let's pray together.
Father, for this day and for the time we can reflect upon this great discourse, this teaching block by Jesus, we give you thanks. We pray that our hearts will be touched by it, our hearts will be moved by the, by the vision that Jesus shares concerning the church. Please bless us today, bless those that are being baptized, strengthen them, Father, in the vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, your son, and a participant in kingdom. We give you the praise. We give you our total adoration in Jesus' name.